Well, good morning, church. Today we will be continuing in 1 John, and we'll be in chapter 2 this morning, verses 7 through 11. 1 John chapter 2, 7 through 11. I'm a, a little bit under the weather this morning, so please bear with me if there's a, a cough or uh, anything like that. So, All right, let's, let's look at our passage this morning. Starting in verse 7. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. It is true. It is always true. I pray, Lord, that you would write what you would have for us to hear this morning on our hearts. Lord, not just in our minds, but through our ears, through our minds, into our hearts, Lord, that we would be changed. That we would be molded into the image of Christ. And that when we leave here this morning, we would be that much more like your Son, Lord, you alone can do this. It is in your hands. Words alone cannot change. But by your Spirit, we can be helped. We can be encouraged. We can be set free. We can be renewed. We can be transformed. And so, Lord, we lift this service to you this morning, asking that you would do what we desire to see done, what only you can do, work in our hearts, work in our marriages, work in our relationships. Help us, Lord, to love one another. Help us to be like Christ. It's in his name we pray, and it's to him we look. Amen. Well, as we've been working through this book, we've had three goals. To encourage believers to live all the more earnestly for Christ, seeking to, to know Him. That's one. To help Christians to gain a robust and genuine assurance of their salvation and their standing before God. That's two. And lastly, to cut through any deception that a man or a woman may have, thinking that they are a Christian when it isn't true. There are plenty of ways that we can be deceived. Uh, the devil deals in deception, and the most fatal deception of all is when a person thinks that they are in Christ when they're not. I mean, imagine a person who has a, a cut on their arm and it's infected, and you look at it and you know a little bit about medicine, you see that the infection is deep, and, and you know that their life is in danger if they don't get treatment immediately. 
But when you tell them this, they look at you and say, with all seriousness, it's okay. Put some polysporin on it, and I got a Band-Aid. Because of that self-administered superficial treatment, they think they've dealt with the disease. The symptoms are all still there, a spreading redness, pus, fever, it's warm to the touch, aches and pains, but in their estimation, a-okay. And even though the symptoms persist, they conclude their bandaged wound is enough. This happens to people, doesn't it? I know a man once, he, he denied and denied and denied and denied that he had cancer, and in the end, his cancer killed him. I'm sure you've met people like this before, too. They're sick. I mean, it's obvious that they're sick. Maybe, maybe not unto death, but they're sick. And you ask them, what's wrong? And they say, through fits of coughs, it's allergies, or it's the weather, or I'm just tired. And they believe it. At least they mostly believe it. And it's a deception. They don't want to acknowledge that they're sick. But what's worse than being deceived about the condition of our physical bodies is being deceived about the condition of our souls, the health of our souls. We are warned, by the way, repeatedly about this in Scripture. You read through the New Testament, even in the Old Testament, dozens and dozens and dozens of times. I mean, you cannot take the Bible seriously and ignore this. It was a concern to the writers in Scripture. It's been a concern throughout the history of the church, and it's a concern for us today. And when people bear all the symptoms of spiritual death, of walking in darkness, and yet for one reason or another have assured themselves of health, well, it's no different than the person who denies that they're sick or is trusting in their Band-Aid solution. Oh, the treatment must go deeper than that, and the cure must be administered by the great physician. And so that's one of the goals of this series, to bring those who are deceived about their spiritual condition out of that deception and into true spiritual health. And in dealing with spiritual health, it accomplishes two other goals set out. Some believers... Their souls are sick, but not unto death. It's not a fatal sickness. They are in Christ, and when a picture of spiritual health is set before them, they see wounds that need to be bound up and treatments that need to be had, and it works much like medicine. The administration of it can be painful. Often, medicine does not taste pleasant, but the good outcome far surpasses the bitterness of the pain or the cure. And so the genuine believer is encouraged all the more to press on after God and to tear down high places in their own life and to run all the more earnestly to win the prize, to seek and grow in spiritual health. Then there are those who are struggling and they're doubting and they're fainting and they think maybe they're dead spiritually. But when they see a picture of spiritual health put before them, they say to themselves, or the Spirit says within them, well, I see those things in me. And that's true of me, and that's true also, why I must not be as spiritually dead as I once thought. And they are greatly encouraged to press on and to grow in health, and in fact, the greater your assurance, not just of salvation, but of the forgiveness God has given you, of the love that He has for you, of the future and eternity ahead of you, all that God has promised, when you have a robust assurance of that, it will lead to tremendous growth and health 
in your soul. And these are not just my concerns. These are the concerns of the book of 1 John. And it, in, in this book, spiritual hell is defined in a number of terms. First, there is a contrast between light and darkness. Those who walk in darkness have no fellowship with God. And that doesn't mean, as you sometimes hear, well, they belong to God, but they're in a spiritual timeout. If you have no fellowship with God, it means you are lost. Because in the next verse, those who walk in the light are those who have fellowship with God, and the blood of Jesus cleanses them from all sin. Only those in the light are in fellowship with God, and only those in fellowship with God have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. If you're not in fellowship with God, you have not been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Secondly, those who walk in darkness, they deny their sin. They think they have no sin. They don't think they need to be forgiven, or they find some alternative way of dealing with their sin. But those in the light, they know that the only place they can be relieved of their guilt and have their conscience cleansed is by going to the Lord Jesus Christ, and to Christ they go. One who is deceived, they, they never consider their own sin. They never think much of it. They're never pained by it, and they never deal with it according to God's prescription. They never go to Him confessing sin. They just try to do better next time. But those in the light are pained by their sin, even small ones. Ones known only to them. And being wounded by their sin, they go to the only one who can make them clean. When they're defiled, they go to Jesus. Those who are of the truth, they know the only way to be made pure is by the blood of Christ. And that's where they go when they sin. All people sin. Everybody does. Most run from God or try to cover up themselves. But those who know Him, who walk in the light, they run to Him to be made whole. And by the way, sometimes I have believers ask me this. How can I tell the difference between conviction of the Holy Spirit and the accusations of the devil? Because they can feel similar, can't they? Both have a sense of shame and guilt with them. Conviction and condemnation, both, are not pleasant. But there is a tremendous difference between the two. The devil says in accusation, you have sinned. Now run away from God and hide. The Holy Spirit says, you have sinned. Now go to God and be forgiven. Conviction drives you to the Lord. Accusation drives you away. If you ever wonder what's the difference, that's it. Well, thirdly, and this was last week, those who know him keep his commands. Anyone who says, I know him, but does not keep his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That is, Christ is not in him. But the one who yields his life to the Lord, who desires to do his commands and practices them as a style of life, not a, not a, a vain desire that amounts to nothing, but a desire that results in a change of life, these are the ones who know the Lord. And it's not talking about perfect performance here. It's not. I mean, let me give you an example. I mean, imagine you're out working, you ask your boy to bring you a, a glass of water, and unbeknownst to you, he was playing in the mud, and his little hands are filthy. But daddy asked for a glass of water, it's hot, and the boy loves his dad so much, so he runs into the kitchen, and he grabs a glass, and he turns on the tap, and he puts his hand in, and he gets his thumb right up on the rim, and when he turns on the water, it splashes on his hand, and mud runs down his fingers, down his hand, into the 
into the glass. And then he brings you the glass smile. He says, here, Dad, I got it just for you, just like you asked. And it's got dirt in the bottom of it and dirt all over it, dirt on the rim. And he takes it to his dad, and his dad whacks him and says, you good for nothing. Can't you get anything right? I'm not going to drink that. I mean, how wicked and cruel and inhumane and hateful could you be? Now, you wouldn't do that. If you have any decency at all, you would say, thank you, son, for the wonderful glass of water, and you might even drink it. Well, stop thinking that God is cruel like that, and start realizing God is awfully kind and gentle and gracious to sinners like us who come to him. He's not asking for perfect performance. He already got that in Christ. He's asking you, to desire to do His will. I mean, God puts all of us to shame how patient and gentle and loving He is. Before we finish this series, we'll, we'll have at least one morning dedicated just to that. But you see this in the life of Christ, don't you? He walked in love. Love was around Him everywhere He went, and it wasn't a syrupy, sentimental kind of love. It was strong, wasn't it? It was immovable. It couldn't be diluted. That's just who he was. I don't, I don't think anyone could have been around Jesus for more than five minutes and not had an overwhelming sense of the love he had for them. Well, because Christ is in you, you will walk as he walked. He always did the will of his Father. He kept his commands. And you remember the greatest of those commandments? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself both of them are commands to love and if you're walking in the footsteps of Jesus one of the things that will mark your life is love because the Lord of love has taken up residency in your soul and he is abiding in you and because he is in you it will be impossible for that love not to well up and manifest itself in your life which brings us to our text this morning let me read again, verses 7 through 8. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Well, the first thing we are told is that this has been a command from the beginning. It's an old command, and certainly it is. Now, we know the new command is the one that Jesus spoke about many times when he told his people what it means to love, how to love, and most importantly, that we must love one another. And there is a, a force and a clarity and importance of the command to love that is indeed new. But at the same time, it's an old command. The whole of the Mosaic Law, if you remember, governing our relationships with others is summarized as love your neighbor as yourself. And if you read the Mosaic Law, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, a large portion of it is, is actually God teaching us how to love our neighbor as ourselves, teaching us how to love, especially in a group setting. But the requirement to love is still older than this. It is inscribed in what it means to be human. And it was the one unspoken universal law governing all creation before the fall. If you were to go back to that time of Adam and Eve's 
innocence, you would discover that everything and everyone in the world, everyone, two people, were governed and controlled by love. You just think about this for a moment. How is the command given? Love your neighbor as yourself. Elsewhere, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. What does that imply? It implies that every human being wants to be treated a certain way. We all want to be regarded with love, with kindness and patience and gentleness. We all want to and expect to be loved by others and are offended and hurt when we are not. Everybody, you might not be able to put your finger on exactly why, but everybody knows when they have been treated in an unloving way. Now, to be clear, in Christ, we are called to die to ourselves and to be content with his love over that of anybody else. And nevertheless, we were made to be loved and to love one another, and it's not unnatural for someone to be pained when love is not reciprocal or received. Now, of course, this doesn't always happen in a fallen world, and dying to self frees you to a great measure from that pain. I mean, how can you be hurt when you're dead to yourself? Go to the graveyard and be as hateful and ruthless as you want. A great many people may be offended, but I assure you, they won't be the ones that are buried in the ground. Why? Because they're dead. They don't hear or feel a thing. And if you are dead to yourself, you are free from criticism. You're free from the cruelty of others. Free from the hatefulness that men can dish out, either intentionally or accidentally. You're liberated from it because though you are free to yourself, you are alive to Christ. What does that mean? It means the only one who can offend or disappoint you, who can do damage to your desire to be loved, the only one who can do that is Him. And you're safe because He is the only one who will never do those things. He doesn't even have the ability to stop loving you if you belong to Him. But the point implied is that we know what it means to be loved. And we know we are supposed to show this to one another. And we know that because of the unpleasant feeling it creates in us when we're not treated with love. Augustine said, you know how stealing is wrong? You know stealing is wrong because you get annoyed when someone steals from you. It's written right in here. It's a command we've had from the beginning. Everybody knows it is right to be loved and to love others. It's embedded in what it means to be made in God's image. Now, in a fallen world, love is always corrupted and is set aside. But creation itself, as a mark of God's hand upon it, it cries out to us, love one another. That's why it shows up in so many other religions and philosophies. It is a law built into creation and inscribed on the conscience and heart of every man. But in the light of the glory of Christ, doesn't it take on a greater fullness? It's elevated, love is, to the utmost degree by word and example. I, this is the newness of the command. We are to love one another, maybe not like we think best, not even like the Mosaic Law commands, and not even primarily as we love ourselves. We are to love as Christ has loved us. This is directly from John's Gospel, John chapter 13, 34 and 35. A new command I give to you. This is what John is, is remembering here in 1 John, probably. 
A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so must you love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Well, now we have a standard that's been set, haven't we? The bar has been raised. What kind of love are we commanded, are we told we must have for one another? The love of Christ, as I have loved you. Jesus is our example. He loved sacrificially. He loved in spite of being annoyed with people. I mean, how often in the Gospels does he sigh? How long are you going to be so dumb? Right? He's patient with people who require much patience. He loves difficult people. He loves sick people. He loves sinful people. He loved in spite of sin and covered sin. Not only that, he loved when sinned against. And this love was motivated by himself. It flowed out of him. He, he didn't look at the people and say, oh, they're so lovable. Let me put my love on them. He said, they're so pathetic. But love in here came out of Christ. He loved because he loved them. And this is how we're called to love. We're called to love others regardless of how that love is received, regardless of how they treat us. We're called to love others when we are sinned against. And I know some people will say, well, look, I just can't make myself love. Well, and if you think that, then I know immediately you have a definition of love that comes primarily from the world and not from scriptures. Because love is not something that happens to you. It's not something that you fall into or that you have no control of. I don't know what that is, but it's not what the Bible talks about when it talks about love. It's something, but it's not love. When the Bible speaks about love, it speaks about how we treat and respond to other people. Maybe you don't always, maybe you don't always feel like someone, feel like loving somebody. So I, I really don't have it in here. That's all right. Do it anyway. And you say, well, wouldn't that make me a hypocrite? No, calling yourself a Christian and being hateful to everyone, that would make you a hypocrite. But making an effort to love others, even when you don't feel like it, guess what? Your actions or your your emotions are going to follow those actions. They will. The heart will come along. The heart will follow the actions and the thoughts. And when we consider the biblical picture... It is not wrong to say we love because we choose to love. And that requires a lot of wrestling with yourself. It will. When the, when the temper starts to rise, you, you push it back down. Quote scripture to yourself if you have to. I'm going to be patient. I'm not going to be irritable. And you repent of your irritability when it comes. But you make every effort to love. And when you don't, you ask for forgiveness. You seek repentance and doing those things, you'll grow in love. And this is, this is good news. Everybody wants to be more loving. We can be. But we're not talking here about loving just anybody. We're not talking about love for the lost. We're not talking about love for our family or love for our friends. We're talking about love for a very specific group of people. We're going to limit our scope this morning to this specific group of people. Love for the church. Love for 
other Christians, other believers. That's who Jesus' words in John 13 are addressed to, to the disciples. And by their love, not for everyone, but by their love for one another, other believers, the world will know that they are Jesus' disciples. They will love one another, which is why the opposite of that, well, if you hate one another, the world will know that you are not my disciples. And if you think, well, that's a little bit of a stretch, what does John 2, 9 through 11 say? Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. If I say I'm in the light, I know the Lord, and I hate my brother, I'm in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and he walks in the darkness, and he doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. And Here is the fourth distinction between those who walk in light and those who dwell in darkness. Do they love their brothers and sisters in Christ? This is not just some minor command to put in among the rest. In Christianity, love is everything. That, that cannot be overstated. Just, just consider the opening verses of 1 Corinthians 13. If I have a great and a far-reaching ministry, impacts millions of people, but have no love, it's nothing and it's going to be burned up. If I'm wise and learned and my doctrine is phenomenal and there is no question I cannot answer theologically, but I have no love, all of my life and learning has been a waste. If I have great faith and can move mountains or perform all kinds of miracles whenever, or if I was a martyr, gave away everything I had and delivered up my body to be burned at the stake, but if I did not love, that sacrifice would mean absolutely nothing. Why? Because of the preeminence of love? Love takes precedent over all. Better to have nothing and be a loving person than to have a great ministry and appear to do much for the kingdom and have it all get burned up on the day of judgment like hay and wheat and stubble. Love is what defines a Christian. And if there's no love in whatever you do, it's worthless. I mean, the implications regarding love could not be clearer. It has to cover and inform all that we do. And so if you say you're in the light but hate your brother, hate your sister in Christ, you are still in darkness. And you are blind. And you don't know where you're, you're so enveloped in the darkness you can't even see it. You can't see how opposite, antithetical, opposed to Christ, that lovelessness is. I remember once in uh, Bible college, a young lady that I knew, and, and someone annoyed her, she just didn't like this person, and she would get so angry about it, I heard her say once, if I wasn't a Christian, this wasn't the only time it happened, this particular incident stood out, and I don't remember what had happened to her, it was just some silly little thing, but I remember her response, I mean, she was spitting venom, just hating this person. If I wasn't a Christian, I would do this, and I would do that, and I'd tell her this, and, and I heard her going on and on, and I thought, well, don't let your imagination stop you. I mean, this was no snapshot. I mean, when you live three years with 70 people, 24-7, you, you get to know them a little bit. And there was a 
a flat-out refusal to love this other person who annoyed and offended this young lady. They annoy me. I don't like them. And so being a Christian requires I bite my tongue, and I, I, I'm not going to say everything I'm thinking, and I will go out of my way to avoid them, and I won't do all the hateful things I want to do to them in my heart, even though all of the thoughts and, and keeping these things in here totally justified. What that person needed to do was the last thing they would ever dream of doing. They needed to repent of the hatred in their heart for this awkward sister in Christ. And not just repent of that, but in all likelihood, they needed to repent of their hypocrisy and their taking the name of the Lord in vain, professing to know Christ and denying him by her actions. Titus 1.16. She hated her sister in Christ, didn't know that she was still in darkness. And that's kind of a stark example, but there are others. What about cynicism? Cynicism, looking down on another believer or Christian leader or church. A real church, and I wish I didn't have to make that distinction, but you do, a, a genuine group of believers, of brothers and sisters in Christ, and you look down on them because of their particularities and the way they go about honoring God and worshiping Him. And they really love the Lord, but not the way you think they should. Their backgrounds, colors, it colors everything they do, even without them knowing. You say, what do you mean? I mean, a church in Washington, D.C. is going to be different from a church in Fredericton. It's going to be different from a church in Nebraska. There are so many things that make churches unique, and we do a great evil to one another when we view one another with cynicism and contempt. There's no place for that in the Christian life. If you cannot love your brother or sister because they're different, a little off balance, or too cold for your liking, or they have slight differences in theology... They're not unorthodox, but genuine differences among believing brothers, whatever it is, and you look down on them with cynicism or you're bitter towards them and you have disdain for them, really hard to say you're loving your brothers. And I don't mean you have to agree with them. I don't mean you can't have your preferences. I don't even mean you have to give your approval to what they're doing but you do need to love them. When others in the faith disagree, and they put the emphasis theologically in a different place, right or wrong, or even if they have silly beliefs that you wish you just let go of, or just let them go, do you love them? Now, you might talk to them about these things and hope to see them maybe advance a little further, but do you look down on them because of these things? Do you use those differences to justify a cynical, maybe even bitter, unloving attitude towards others? That's a good indicator of spiritual health. Do you tolerate hatred and bitterness in your heart towards others? Do you think it's all right to revile other believers because they offend you or you don't agree with them? If, if that's you, take a look at your heart and go to the Lord and ask Him for help. Again, I'm not talking about the visible church at large. I'm talking about genuine brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you know what the result of, of hating others is? Verse 10. Love removes stumbling blocks. Hatred causes men and women to stumble. What does that mean? 
When you all know what it means, you probably experienced it. Jesus tells us, tells the world, that the world will know you are his disciples. Men will know you are his disciples. The world watching you will know you are disciples by your love for one another. But if they see people who bear the name of Christ, hating one another, slandering one another, being cynical or fighting or worse, doing some horrid, hateful, evil, wicked thing, when, when people see that, do you know what happens? They stumble. But not over the hypocrite. They stumble over Christ. And they see the person doing what they're doing, and they say to themselves, if that's what it means to follow Christ, count me out. I don't want anything to do with that. And this believer, by their actions, they've brought reproach upon the name of Christ. Hatred towards others. Listen, hatred towards others in the church, animosity towards them, cruelty in your words and your thoughts. When the world sees it, they scorn Christ and they stumble. They won't believe. They have been driven away from the Savior and the damage has been done and the hypocrite has been the means of pushing them away from God and into hell. That's what it means to make someone stumble. You say, well... Wouldn't they go their own, their, their own way anyway? Matthew 18, 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better if a millstone was tied around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Of the sea. You don't want to make others stumble. And cruelty and hate and hypocrisy in the church drives people away from Christ. Nobody who belongs to Jesus hates the children of God, for that would be hating the very dwelling place of Christ. But guess what? Hatred isn't even the main concern here. If anyone hates his brother, the love of Christ isn't in him. That much is clear. But simply not hating isn't the standard. It's not an apathetic tolerance either. We're not talking about the absence of hatred that defines those in the light but the presence of love is what defines them. The believer actually and actively loves his brothers and sisters in Christ. You, you actually want to be around them, and you care for them, and you wonder how they're doing. You love them. And, you know, you know we, we probably live in one of the most unloving ages. And it's true, the Bible tells us, in the latter days, the love of most will grow cold. And for all the talk and, ironically, hateful shouting, the word love, right, there doesn't seem to be too much of it around in the world. We're just not that good at, at loving people. I mean, the mantras of our age. So th think about the world that you are living in. Cut off toxic people. Right? Practice self-love. Just take those two things and think. If Christ cut off toxic people and practice self-love, what would happen? We'd all be dead and gone forever. But the wisdom of the world is in direct conflict with love. It is. And don't think for a moment that doesn't creep into the church. I mean, it, it does. How many of you, you want to cut off toxic people who make you feel unpleasant or uncomfortable for one reason or another in the church? 
I say, I don't, I don't like being around them. They don't make me feel good. I'm going to cut them off. That's the world's wisdom. Right? If it offends you, smash it. If it makes you anxious, avoid it. Do whatever you can to look out for yourself. And then, and only then, if you have anything else left, maybe you can show some love to others. Right? Once you've cared for yourself, taken care of yourself, built, then maybe if there's anything left, you can give your brothers and sisters the scraps of your life. That's not the church, brothers and sisters. That's, that's not how Christ was with us. He poured himself out. Believers love to be around believers. And maybe you say, well, yeah, but so-and-so does this or says that. Well, let's stop right there. You need to make a decision, if that was you. Do you want to complain about others or do you want to love them? I know you want to love them. So what do you do? Love overlooks covers a multitude of sins. And in the context of the church and in dealing with other people, the most important thing that you can do is remember that love covers over a multitude of sins. It's in 1 Peter 4.8. It's in Proverbs 10.12 and 17.9. Love covers sins. I remember once uh, listening to R.C. Sproul preach on this, and he said, what do you do when someone you love, your child or friend, they do something sinful, not a major thing, just some, something in their foolishness, they sin, the kind of sin that anyone could do, what do you do? Give some time to think. What do you do? Well, I remember thinking to myself, well, you lovingly go to them and you correct them. That's what I thought. And R.C.'s answer was like a, a dagger in my heart, and it's stuck there ever since. He said, you say, oh, that's just so-and-so. And you let it slide. You let it go. You don't nag them and point it out and interrogate them. When there's somebody you love and they do something ridiculous or they sin, you just, oh, that's just so-and-so. Why do you say that? Because you love them. I wasn't thinking that way at all. I was thinking the loving thing to do, well, so to deal with the sin and to point it out and to crush it and to purge it. Now, it was a rebuke, and I'm thankful for it, and I'm still working on it, but I am working on it. But isn't that so often how we think? In the church, what does love mean? It means picking out the sins and deal with them. Consider instead chapter 5 of 1 John, verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. What's he say? You see somebody and they're in sin. It doesn't lead to death. It's not threatening them. You know, it's not threatening to lead them astray. What do you do? Pray for them. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. There are sins that you can just overlook and not address. There are sins you can cover and let slide. And if you are concerned, then pray for the person. But if you confront every single sin, that's going to destroy love. I mean, just imagine your marriage if you did this. 
You're going to pick out every little thing your spouse does. Always correct them. Always pointing out their sin. I don't even mean maliciously. I mean, you want to do well. You want them to grow. You want to see them advance. What's going to happen? The total opposite. The marriage will begin to collapse. Why? Because of lovelessness. I mean, you wouldn't like it if it happened to you. And if you were the one doing it, you're, you'll exasperate your spouse. I mean, just because we think something is a good idea or honors God, it doesn't make it so. God tells us what good ideas are. God tells us how to honor Him, and God tells us how to love. And over and over, the Scriptures teach us that in order to love, the probably vast majority of sins we commit against one another ought to be covered over, not dwelled on, not even mentioned again. I mean, isn't this how God is with us? I mean, when you sin, just take today as an example. Just this morning, from the time you got up until right now, sitting in your chair, you have probably sinned hundreds of times. Probably. And yet, how many have God brought to your immediate attention? And how many of those sins has He come and convicted you of? Come with his rod of, of discipline to instruct you. And then throughout the week, how many times have you sinned and it's simply gone overlooked? God, let it slide, so to speak. And you know there are other times where he does discipline you and he does come to deal with you and he doesn't let it slide. But how many of them has he covered? And look, I, I know ultimately they're all paid for in Christ. But I'm talking about your relational experience with your heavenly father does he bring every single sin to your attention to be dealt with the answer is no the majority are simply not brought up at all love overlooks them this might save your marriage or some other relationship you have you don't always have to be the sin police investigating every single peccadillo and bringing it to justice that's not how you love and that's not what you're called to there are sins that do not lead to death, and they, in the name of love, can be safely ignored. However, there is a time when love demands that we speak. There are some sins that lead to death, and love demands that they are addressed. And I've got to say this because the temptation will be for some people to say, oh yeah, calling out any sin at all is unloving. No, that's not true. Galatians 6 tells us that believe, tells believers there is a time to address sin. It's to be addressed carefully. It's to be respect, uh, addressed respectfully, gently, and cautiously. But it has to be addressed all the same. I mean, when people are living together who are not married, it has to be addressed. When people are gossiping and ruining the reputation of others, it has to be addressed. When people are stealing, it has to be addressed. When people are being divisive in the church or building up idols or neglecting the body of Christ, it has to be addressed. Those sins are the path of falling away. And they cannot go on without a confrontation. Love for the good of a person committing or allowing certain sins to continue, love demands it be addressed. You see this in Matthew 18. If you wonder, well, how do I do this? Matthew 18. If a brother sins against you, go to them and work it out. There's step one. Somebody sins against you and you can't just overlook it, go to them and work it out. 
most of the confrontation in the church, this is where it's worked out. You with the other individual, you haven't brought a dozen people into it. You go to them, you work it out. But if that doesn't work, take somebody else. Why? Well, one, as a witness, to encourage the person in the wrong to repent if they're in the wrong. Two, one, one, one other reason why you might bring somebody else is one person may think, well, this is just a small thing that ought to be overlooked when it isn't and it needs to be addressed. Or it may be that both people need to be corrected and taught to walk in love. There's an example of this in the New Testament. Did you know that? One person was theologically astute and another had made less progress and they're giving each other a hard time and Paul has to deal with it. And he does in Romans chapter 14. In chapter 14, we won't read it, but in Romans chapter 14, there's a problem. Some believers with weak faith, they're giving mature believers a hard time. And the mature believers are getting frustrated with those who have the weak faith. And they're letting them have it. What's the issue? Meat. Meat that has been sacrificed to idols. The mature believers are eating it. The weak believers say, what are you doing? And you could insert any number of other things here. Paul himself adds drinking wine in verse 21. But that's the issue. Mature believers who know that idols are nothing, they have no scruples about eating meat sacrificed to nothing, and then believers with weak faith who just can't bring themselves to accept that. So there's a conflict. One group is telling the other, you shouldn't do that, it's wrong, it's sinful, that meat has been sacrificed to idols, how in the world can you justify eating that? And the other group, you don't know what you're talking about, the, the book is clear, it's been sacrificed to nothing, and if we receive it with thanksgiving, it's acceptable. It's a conflict. Theologically, in their doctrine, one group is right and the other is wrong. One group is right and the other is wrong. And usually, in theological disputes, these kinds of things, you know what somebody wants? When they bring somebody else in, they want the other person to come in and say, tell me I'm right and tell them they're wrong. Right? Well, the apostle sees the problem here. But it's not primarily a theological problem. There is a problem, the theological one, and he addresses it. But the problem is relational. Far worse than the theological dispute these believers are having is their failure to love one another. Now he does answer the question, but I want you to think about how he answers it. He says, yes, I am convinced in Christ the meat is clean. That's in verse 14. It's clean. The mature believers are theologically correct. But does that mean that they get to lord it over their weaker brothers? Absolutely not. And Paul looks at the weak believers and he tells them, you need to stop calling what your brothers are doing evil. It might not be right for you. You might not have the faith to eat what they are eating and it troubles your conscience, but it's your conscience, not theirs. You aren't loving them. You're only loving yourself, trying to condemn them on account of your little faith. Stop squabbling over this and start loving them. And then he looks at the mature believers and says, and you... He's got, he's got fingers pointed both ways. 
and you eating this meat, whether it's doctrinally permissible or not, that's not the point. Look at what you are doing to this weak brother of yours. You're throwing him into distress. He's stumbling in his faith. He looks up to you. He sees what you're doing, and it troubles him to the core. And all you can say is, well, all things are clean in Christ. Is that loving your brother? No, it's only loving yourself. Do not, by what you eat and drink, destroy the one for whom Christ died. You see what happens here in verse chapter 14? They're not loving one another. We don't think this way. When we have a dispute, that's what we want. Someone to come and tell us who's right and who's wrong. And we never think maybe the most important part, most important question is what does love require in this instance? It doesn't even cross our minds. And yet it is the thing that ought to inform every relationship in the church. Love the body of Christ. Love the brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you know why this is such an ultimate command in Scripture? There, there are a few reasons. One, because the Lord of love has put His Spirit in us. We represent Him and every unloving act is a direct affront to the name that we bear. God is love. We represent Him. Therefore, we must love. Another reason, the Holy Spirit is in us. And what are the fruit of the Spirit? Love. The Holy Spirit is at work to create love in us. Lastly, because Christ is in us, and we are in Him. Christ is in us. We are the members, the body of Christ. We are the temple of the Lord. Do you ever think about that? I mean, just take a look around you, really. Look at the person on your left. Look at the person on your right. Look at someone sitting in front of you. None of you are doing it, by the way. Don't feel bad. <laughs> when you get up and you're on your way out and you see all kinds of people, you're not just looking at other people who were here with you on Sunday morning. You are looking at the very temple of God here on earth. You are looking at those with whom Jesus Christ is pleased to dwell, pleased to love, and pleased to lay his life down to receive. And if the Lord loves them and is in them, then if only for the sake of loving Christ, we can love one another. How often do we judge our brothers and sisters as if they were pagan altars to be smashed and not one with whom the Lord is pleased to dwell? But when you stop looking at others as nuisances to be tolerated, but you start to look at your brothers and sisters, those in the church, as men and women indwelled by the Spirit of God, the, the dwelling place where God is, you're not going to have such a hard time loving them because you'll begin to realize the love you show for them is the love you have for Christ. Jesus tells us, as I have loved you, love one another. 
So I would ask we make it our aim this year to love the bride of Christ with the love of Christ and show them the same forgiving, gentle, patient, transgression, covering love that he has lavished on you. Let's pray. Lord, it is a tall order and a wonderful thing that you have called us to. How our lives would be transformed if we loved one another like Christ loved us. How many, how many trials would vanish. Lord, all of the hardship that we face is on account on account of sin, on account of a, a failure to love, almost all of it. Lord, I pray that you would help us, God. I know we look at ourselves and say, I don't know if I can do this. Lord, it's impossible in us. But if we abide in you and you in us, Lord, help us to grow in love. Lord, certainly the, the seeds of it sprouting up are in the hearts of all your people. Let us be diligent, Lord, to grow in love to grow in our ability to cover trespasses against us and sins, to grow in our discernment to know which ones must be addressed and which ones we can simply let slide. Help us, Lord, not to be blinded by offense when we are sinned against. Lord, and not to put coals on a kindled fire. Lord, help us to love one another as you have loved us. For the good of your church, for the good of your name, for our own good, Lord, what evil comes when we love like Jesus? None. What a tremendous and great blessing it is. Oh, Lord, we acknowledge our shortcoming in this, and we confess it before you. Lord, we are not always as good as loving others as we think. But Lord, we can do better. And we can by the grace that you have given us in Christ and the example he has set. And I pray, Lord, for all of us, we would be resolved to press on in love for one another. In your name we pray. Amen.